Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following sermon is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Sunday morning service. To view the entirety of our service, please visit our Facebook page at The Tabernacle Family or our YouTube channel at The Tabernacle Today. Additional information about The Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Turn your Bibles to Exodus 34 if you haven't already. And as you're turning there, uh, I put out some extra little prayer pebbles here for those that are just joining us or haven't understood what this is yet. Uh, Around a couple years ago, we started doing this. It probably won't be up here much longer, but we've been celebrating answers to prayer when you have a sense that God's answered your prayer, whether it be yes, no, or wait, and you want to thank him for uh, answering your prayer. Uh, then uh, you can come before or after the service or during the time of the invitation and just uh, thank the Lord and uh, place the pebble in there like I did earlier and uh, where those all represent uh, senses of answers to prayer in the life of the congregation and so uh, those are out there for you. Exodus 34, I want to start with reading you a poem that I love so much. Uh, It's by Ella Wheeler Wilcox, and uh, Chuck Swindoll oftentimes quotes this and uh, puts it in some of his books and things like that, and I just, the first time I saw it, just fell in love with it too. Listen to this analogy uh, based on uh, ships and sails and things like that for the believer's life. One ship drives east and another drives west with the self-same winds that blow. Tis the set of the sails and not the gales which tells us the way to go. Like the winds of the sea are the ways of fate as we voyage along through life. Tis the set of a soul that decides its goal and not the calm or the strife. Isn't that good? How many times do you see a sailboat and it's actually going against the wind. The wind's blowing this way, but it's able to go against it because of it's just changed the direction of the sails to harness that. It's set the sails, and we set our souls like that. We set our souls on the Lord Jesus, and circumstances, how, no matter how hard the winds blow, can't knock us off of the direction that we're set. And so I love that about that. And that fits perfectly with today's message because as we've looked at Exodus 34 now for, uh, this is the sixth week, we've seen that God comes to his people and he gives them a greater sense of his name so that they could set their souls by it to know who he is. And we've been saying when God tells us who he is, we need to believe him and turn from our sin to him or back to him and rebuild our life around his steadfast love and truth. And so hopefully you're there already, and we're going to read the first nine verses again. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his hands two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. 
the Lord passed before him, before Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. The word is truth or faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it, for we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. God reveals what he cannot do. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the time of singing we've had and those who have sung to us, Lord, and led us in worship. We do truly give you thanks as we talked about earlier and prayed earlier, Lord. We thank you for the word, the ancient words that are timeless words. They're not outdated. They spring off the page at us today. Holy Spirit, you were there when the text was written. You inspired the authors. Lord, you were speaking through these authors, God, and you are... Uh, you were with me this week as I was studying to preach and as people prepared their hearts and you're with us now in this very room. Fill this place with a sense of your presence, Lord God. And Holy Spirit, we ask you to take the words off the page and into our hearts. And Lord, my prayer throughout this time of these six weeks, just looking at this one passage, is that nearly everybody who's heard these words would be able to say back verses six and seven when you tell us the seven or so components of your name that sometime when it matters during this rushed Thanksgiving Christmas season, we'll just stop. And permeating everything else will be our sense that you're merciful and gracious to us, that you're slow to anger, that you're abounding in steadfast love, which is such an amazing word. You're abounding in hesed, your goodness, your mercy, your loving kindness, and all the different ways that's translated, your faithful love. You're also abounding in truth. You're so faithful to us and faithful to your truth and to give it to us to help us build and rebuild our lives. Lord, we thank you that you keep that steadfast love to all who know you, to thousands and thousands and thousands. We thank you that you forgive iniquity and transgression and sin. You forgive sins of commission Lord the things we know we're not supposed to do that we do you forgive sins of omission the things we should be about for you that we too often fail to be about for you and Lord we're thankful for this last component you give us today that none of the above applies to those who won't repent and turn to you that if we choose to live for self and defy you and we stay the Lord of our own lives, you will by no means clear. You won't declare us not guilty. We'll remain guilty. We're guilty sinners. And if we don't repent, we'll remain guilty before you. And our sin will affect things for maybe 80 years or more to come. Affect things in the lives of those who come after us, God, until somewhere along the line. Your mercy and grace breaks that and we start a new chapter for our lives and those around us, God. Thank you for the truth of this passage, Lord, and I pray that these truths will resonate to us. Thank you for bringing them to our attention over these weeks. In Christ's name I pray, amen.
Well, just to review for a moment, of time, a moment or two, in the first message, we saw God tell us that he's merciful and gracious. And it's well said that mercy is not getting what you do deserve. You deserve punishment, you don't get it from God, he's merciful to you. And grace is getting what you don't deserve. Uh, his righteousness covering you and counting for you. His forgiveness, his restoration to fellowship with God. And in that first message, we also looked at how after uh, God told these things to Moses and the people, it stuck in their minds like I want it to stick in our minds. And so a little bit of time passes. In the days of Second Chronicles, they were again quoting these things. In Second Chronicles 30, verse 9, he's saying, we know that you're merciful and gracious. You will forgive sin. You're uh, abounding in steadfast love. And in the time of Nehemiah, when the people were rebuilding their lives around God's truth and rebuilding up Jerusalem and those things, again, they quote these things in their mind. And in Nehemiah 9:17, they say, we know these things about you and we're counting on them. You promised God, you told us who you are and we believe you. We're choosing to believe what you've said to us about you. And then we looked at Jonah also in there. And Jonah didn't want to go and preach to the wicked uh, Ninevites, which is Assyria and modern-day Iraq and that sort of thing. And he said, because I knew if I preach to them that you'll be merciful and gracious to them also if they will repent. And I didn't want them to be saved. I didn't want them to be anything but judged by you. And so in the days of Jonah, the prophet was being redirected toward the heart of God, not just for Israel, but for all peoples to know what Israel first enjoyed and then others were to enjoy as well. In the second message, we saw that God is slow to anger. I was kind of in a poetry-like mood back then, like I am today, and I quoted you lines from Francis Thompson's The Hound of Heaven, C.S. Lewis and others, G.K. Chesterton and uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, I believe, also referred back to Thompson's poem, The Hound of Heaven, about God's love pursues us. You're uh, like the great modern chorus that says uh, his uh, mercy, his grace is running after us. You're running after us. You're running after us. Just like it says in Psalm 23, surely goodness and cassette will follow me all the days of my life. Goodness and mercy, his loving kindness, his steadfast love will follow me all the days of my life. And so we saw in the Hound of Heaven poem that God pursues us with unhurrying chase and unperturbed pace. Isn't that good? He's slow to anger. He wants us to know that he's not as we often are. He's not hasty to exercise his rightful anger at sin. He is thoughtful. He's deliberate. He judges sin, but never in sinful anger and lashing out like we do. Now, God does have to deal with sin. He has to deal with all sin, or he's not 100% holy, just, and righteous, as we're going to see in what he says today, that he will not clear the guilty if they won't repent because of his holiness, because of his sense of justice, because of his absolute righteousness, he has to deal with sin. And that's why the gospel is so precious to us because Christ came to bear the sin and its consequences, the guilt, the shame, and the consequences, all the penalty of our sin. And in the fullness of time, he went to the cross and did that. And so even back in Exodus 34, God was looking into the future with his John 3:16 filter knowing that he could be merciful and patient with us and gracious and slow to anger because he says, my son's going to deal with that for you one day, Israel. They were looking forward to that. We look back on that. 
and we're thankful that God's still slow to anger because we see that we're stiff-necked like they often were. We oftentimes, like the hymn says, are prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. God's slow to anger. In the third message, we saw God tell us he's abounding in steadfast love. And I told you, that's one of my favorite words in all the scriptures, the Hebrew word chesed, chesed. Hasidic Jews take their uh, name from chesed. They're telling you that we are people that love God. We love him back, or they're trying to love him back for uh, the steadfast love that he has toward us. Now, we saw that if you love God and you are humbling yourself before him and growing in your relationship with him, God has a way of revealing more of himself to those who are growing in their relationship with him. Many of us love that verse, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. What will he do? Direct your paths. But that's Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Back in Proverbs 3, 3, God says he wants his people to picture God's hased, his steadfast love, and his truth around their necks like an ornament uh, that's beautiful there, perhaps also invoking the image of putting on the breastplate and letting his love and truth guide you and protect you as you go through life. God's steadfast love will mean everything to you when you realize you've sinned and you need to turn back to him and get his forgiveness. It will mean everything to you when you love those who have sinned against you with a Christ-like love. In fact, nobody ever embodied being full of God's cassette and his amet, his grace and truth, uh, like Jesus did. He did it perfectly for us. And now that Jesus has come, we never need to ask what God is like because God has been here. And he is the way. He's the way for us to be forgiven of our sins. But then he also becomes our perfect model. Uh, I recently heard of a pastor. And uh, he's respond in the last couple of years, he, he's been asking himself a question and it's rocked his world. Jesus, how do you see this? How do you see this? And he told a story uh, as he has now written a book about it. And uh, he tells a story of a fellow that was on a train and there was a man there and he had two kids with him and the kids were out of control. I mean, you know how you've been in that situation. You've been in some situation, some shop or something. The kids were out of control. They're running here, running there. Everybody on the train's being driven crazy by this. The man's distracted. He's not even paying attention. And finally, this Christian brother and all his, uh, you know, he wasn't slow to anger. He finally looked at the man and said, sir, can't you control your kids? This is awful. What's going on here? And the man who was just shocked there kind of came back up into reality and he said, oh, oh yes, I'm sorry. And he said, boys, you know, come to me. And, and he pulled him in and, and, and he's wrestling with him there, has this foggy look on his face and he looks back over and says, thank you so much, sir. I'm so sorry about this and anyone else that's, that's been irked by this. Um, we just came from the hospital and their mom, my wife just died. In one second, it changed everything for the man that was irked because then instead of being like, well, good, you finally controlled your kids, that's great. He was like, oh, my, I'm sorry. I didn't even know that that's what's going on. He hadn't asked if that's what's going on. He hadn't asked if there's any way he could help. Instead, he'd just seen the situation and been angry and irate about it, just like we are when we watch the TV, when we go to stores, when we do this, when we do that, and we never take the time to think to ourselves, Jesus, how do you see this? 
and to ask, is there something else here that I could weigh in on and be a help and bring the presence of Christ into the situation? God is abounding in steadfast love, and when he couldn't get it through our minds and skulls just and hearts just by teaching it to us, Jesus came and modeled it perfectly for us. God's faithful love will matter when you reach out to those who don't yet know God with his love, like Jonah was supposed to do. But he was irked because he didn't want those people in the kingdom also. In the fourth message, we saw God tell us he's also abounding in truth, in truth. We are often arbitrary in how we evaluate ourselves and others. But God has a perfect standard where we're evaluated by the truth he has revealed in his holy word. And every biblical command God gives is based on his truth and it's to help us flourish as his children. Every sin listed in the Bible, uh, the other side of that is that every sin listed in the Bible, it has built-in consequences that will be experienced when we reject God's truth for us and engage in that sin. On that message, I told you about uh, the gift that John Mc Josh McDowell gave to the body of Christ in his teaching, in the simple teaching of behind every precept, there's a principle, and behind every principle is the person of God. So the precept is, thou shalt not lie, don't lie. I love how the Hebrew lays all those Ten Commands out. It says, not lie, not adultery. <laughs> Just like that two words, space on the paper is not wasted. Not theft, um, not take my name in vain, not lie. The precept is don't lie. But behind the lie is the principle that we need truth to have good relationships with each other. So if I lie to you and you lie to me, it's going to affect our ability to trust each other. So the negative principle is don't lie, but the positive principle is we need truth to have a relationship with each other, and that's based on the person of God and his character. We can count on God never to lie to us. He'll always tell us not just what we want to hear, but what we need to hear. Just like chemotherapy will hurt a person before uh, it helps a person, uh, God's truth sometimes hurts us because we recoil against it. According to your word, God, I'm a, I lie too much. One lies too many. According to your word, Lord, uh, my lust is adultery. According to your word, Lord, my, my, uh, uh, my anger is a type of murder. And so I find myself humbled before God by his word. His truth tells me that uh, I um, put myself first way too much. And uh, I love that whole preset principle person. We saw a Ken Myers quote that's so good. It so, said, if our souls were properly ordered, if our souls were properly ordered, we would love our limits, not despise them. We would love our limits, God's truth, the negative commands and the positive commands, all there to help us be what he wants us to be. In the fifth message we saw, and this is a good thing to emphasize after talking about truth, we saw God tells us that he forgives sin. So he gives us this standard that he's abounding in truth. We fall short of the glory of God. We fall short of his truth. And yet he'll forgive our iniquity, our transgression and sin. Forgiveness means to lift off, to bear up, to carry off, to take away. And when we confess our sins as sin, when we agree with our God that it's sin, when we repent, repent means change our mind. And when we turn to or back to God in faith, he forgives us, he restores us to right relationship with himself. And we saw in that message that the opposite of pride is not humility. Sometimes you ask somebody, what's the opposite of pride? And they say, well, it's humility. And that's a good answer, but that's not thinking it through. 
pride, what does it do? It glorifies yourself. You're proud because you want to get recognition for yourself. I'm that good a singer, I'm that good a player, I'm that good a student, and I'm better than others. And so it's puffing yourself up. The opposite of pride and glorifying yourself is what? It's glorifying God. He deserves a certain amount of glory from you for the way he's made you, the way he's talented you, the way he's given you gifts and resources, and every bit of it is there not for your own glory, but to glorify him. A person that gets it, pride, glorifying self, turns into glorifying God. Humility is the foundation. You humble yourself before God. You realize he's God and we're not. But we run into good old boys and others that are very proud of their humility, you know. It's not all about me and those things, but they're not really doing things to advance Christ's glory and his kingdom. And so uh, I'll never forget, uh, back up in the valley, talking to one of our elders up there, and I said, Mike, what do you think the average person's, how are they approaching life? How are they trying to get through life? And he said, Danny, I think the average person's trying to get through life without screwing up too bad. And that's my impression living here now too. Ringgold, Virginia, right here. 25% of our membership comes from Ringgold. 50% from Danville, 25% from other things. And uh, boy, there are good people all over Ringgold, aren't there? People that are proud of their goodness, in a sense. Um, My father-in-law is right when he says there won't be any good people in heaven. If you're trusting in your own goodness to get into heaven, then you need to realize how that is one of the most extreme forms of wickedness. Relying on yourself rather than, because what you're doing is you're evaluating yourself based on what you think about others. I'm better than that person. I'm better than that person. I'm better than that person. I feel good about being better than them. And God says, you've got it all wrong. You're grading by a 1 to 100 scale. You think you're an 80 and others a 40. You're a good person compared to others. And God ought to take all the good people like you to heaven. He says, in reality, the scale in heaven is 1 to a billion. None of you make it past 100. So from the standpoint of a billion, I see 80s and 40s as people relying on themselves rather than turning to me for my goodness, my righteousness that will count for you by faith. We'll talk more about that at the end. But that's why it's always good just to drop back. And maybe you haven't been asked this question, sir. Maybe you haven't been asked this question, madam. If you were to die tonight and stand before God and he were to say, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? I can tell you what most people in Ringgold, Virginia would say. They'd either say, I don't know. Or they'd next say, I'm a good person. That's Islam. Islam's the religion that presents life as a scales and you hope to do more good things than bad things. But Islam thinks people are born good rather than understanding what the scripture teaches. You're born with a sin nature. Early in life, you make your own sin choices. You are guilty before a holy God and he would be just, right, and holy. He'd be right in his assessment if he went ahead and sentenced you to hell. And until you realize that you're not a good person before holy God, you're a sinner before holy God, and then you turn to him and say, Lord, I I need you to save me because otherwise I won't be saved. And then you talk about the gospel, what Jesus did for us. That's how much he loved us. Jesus didn't come just to be our example to teach us how to do better. Now listen, let's be very clear here. Our 
America has an investment in people trying to be good people who do the right things. And if you love the Lord, he forgives your sins, and you enter into a relationship with Christ through faith in him, what's he going to do? He's going to put his Holy Spirit inside of you. What's the Holy Spirit going to do? He's going to remind you of the things you're seeing in your Bible. He's going to view, view Christians and a church family to walk through life with. So Christians will be very good people and stop doing very evil things. But none of that will save them. Only faith in Christ saves. Amen? That's the gospel. Well, that does two things, doesn't it? First of all, it levels us all at the foot of the cross. It makes us humbly turn to him. And it means we can't judge any, as other, any others anymore like we like to do. Churches are full of people that it's not about Jesus for them. And instead, they're judging others all the time who aren't as good as they are. So that's why I made the statement earlier. Uh, religious pride is one of the worst sins there is. Uh, and in God's eyes, many times the scriptures reinforce that that is that pride even the religious form of it, like the Pharisees had, uh, is as bad as the adultery and theft and uh, whatever sin you want to fill in the blank with. Respectable sins are still sins in God's eyes, right? Amen. The fifth message. So, we also saw that God is jealous in the last message for us to experience what's best for us rather than the empty ways that we try to fill the hole in our soul. He knows the satisfaction we're looking for will only be found in our relationship with him. So that brings us to the last message in which God reveals what he will not do. So what will God not do? He will not clear guilty sinners who refuse to repent of their sin and turn to God. He just told us in the text he wants us to forgive sin. The Bible makes clear that forgiveness comes when we humble ourselves before God, when we confess our sin to him in prayer, and we ask him to forgive and desire to turn from our wicked ways. When we do that, what does the Bible tell us? It tells us God hears, he forgives, he begins the restoration process. He begins building us up with his truth. But none of that will happen if you don't start by repentance. The word means change of mind. You and I can't be forgiven of sin if we don't repent. This is important because of the way the sinful mind still thinks in our day, just like in their day. So here we've got seven components in this text of the name of God. He says, I am Yahweh, I'm Yahweh, I'm the God who is, and then he lists seven things out. They're in the order of mercy, grace, forgiveness of sins, abounding in steadfast love, abounding in truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. And then he comes to the last one. He says, but by no means clearing the guilty. You're going to run into professing Christians and even some godless church and denominational leaders that presumptuously preach God will be the first six things that that passage speaks of toward everybody, whether they repent or not. There's an entire way of preaching, and it's even put under the umbrella of evangelical, but it sure looks godless and unbiblical and liberal to me. There's an entire way being preached that minimizes a call to repentance and basically instead says, oh, God's just for you. He's going to bless you. God's for you. And then it pulls the different verses out and saying, well, the scripture says this about how he's got wonderful plans for you. He's got great purposes for you. And he's saying that to Joel Osteen when he and others say things like that. They're saying that to everybody listening, whether they've repented or not, whether they have a personal relationship with God or not. 
God will be merciful to you no matter what they say. God will show you grace no matter what they say. God will never be angry at you, they say. God will show you his steadfast love no matter what. God will allow you to pick and choose what truths of his you want to follow. Don't worry about the hard ones you don't like. God will forgive you no matter what. And with all the love in my heart toward you I can muster, let me tell you that none of that is true if you don't repent. You're reading other people's mail. It's not for you if you still are the Lord of your own life and you have no intention of giving your life to Jesus and turning to his ways and away from your wicked ways. Uh, Joel Osteen and those other preachers are lying to you when they tell you that you can experience God's promises without repentance and faith. And then we think of the denominations that are reordering all their sexual teachings to allow those in what the Bible calls sin that you must repent of, not only do they not call you to repent of those sins, they'll let you be the leader of those churches and denominational leaders if you're engaging in those very things. You know, you can go to McDonald's, but that doesn't make you a hamburger, right? And you can call yourself a Christian, you can call yourself a church, but if you're not committed to the teachings of Jesus Christ that are in the Word of God, uh, Ichabod's what's written over the door. That's an Old Testament phrase that means the glory has departed. It's a used to be, not a current. None of what's in verses 6 and 7 is for you if you refuse to repent and live by truth as God defines it in the Holy Bible. You're simply deluding yourselves. And to keep you from doing it, God tells you one final component of his name. It's so important that this part in verse 7 is here. After saying, keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, God says, but who will by no means, say by no means. By no means. Who will by no means clear the guilty? Now let's stop there for a moment. What do we expect a judge to do with a guilty person? Well, he's supposed to declare them guilty, pronounce their penalty, and ensure that justice is satisfied. So, for instance, a thief is caught and has his trial. And the judge declares the thief guilty. He sentences them to three to five years, and they begin serving their sentence. At the three-year mark, the thief comes up for parole and appears before the judge, and the thief feels sorry for his crime. He served the minimum three years, He's got a better attitude and someone on his behalf has paid the store that he stole from. The judge decides that justice has been satisfied and grants that person release. And the judge is so impressed with the man's change of mind that he clears the felony off the man's record. And the man starts with a clean slate going forward in public. Now why does the judge do that? Because judges love it when they have a repentant offender who's learned their lesson and wants to do things differently now. But suppose the same thief appears before the judge and does not feel sorry for his crime. He served the whole five years, so the judge releases him, but there's every reason to believe he will do it again, so the judge does not clear his record. And what do judges do in a situation like that? They remain weary of a repeat offender who has no intention of changing. In Exodus 34, 7, God says he will forgive sin. But to clarify that the offer is not for those unrepentant sinners who continue to mock God and his ways, he says, by no means clearing the guilty. And then God speaks of specific consequences of our sin at the end of verse 7. Look what he says there at the end of verse 7. Visiting the iniquity 
of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Let me pause there. I want you to know that I approach those, that verse with fear and trepidation. Why do you do that, Pastor Danny? In some legalistic circles, those words have been used like a club to beat people over the head with. And then when I went to Africa and was teaching the pastors there, they talked about how many preachers in Africa who have heard about this from preachers in America are all the time preaching about generational curses. And you think about that and how warmly that teaching is received in Africa because of all their witch doctors that curse people, you know, and stuff like that. There is a version of that teaching in America that makes me sick and it does so much harm to the body of Christ. So I want us to avoid that kind of sinful application. In fact, in a minute or two, we're going to look at Ezekiel 18 and I'm going to show you a verse there that makes clear that generational curses is not a teaching that we should spend a lot of time on. But some legalistic teachers have done it, some Pentecostal teachers have done it, some others have done it. And they all the time talking about these generational curses and it's really hurt the continent of Africa and other places where it's emphasized all the time and used uh, to create an unnecessary kind of fear in those that hear it that doesn't really promote change. But I do want us to see how serious sin is in God's eyes. According to Exodus 34, 7, our sin can set in motion consequences that are still being felt several generations later. Some say a generation's 20 years, some say it's 40 years. But it gives us three and four generations here. So 60 to 80 years, maybe over 100 years. Uh, Sin is a big deal to God. And every sin at its core is cosmic treason against the ultimate rule giver, the law giver, right? God. And Genesis illustrated it for us before we ever get to Exodus, didn't it? I mentioned this a few weeks ago that Abraham told the lie that Sarah was his uh, sister. Uh, It was a half lie, but it was still a lie. He was intentionally misrepresenting the truth. He did it at least twice in the pages of Genesis. A few chapters later, it shows Isaac doing the same thing, his son Isaac doing the same thing. And then there was much deception in Isaac and Rebekah's home and Jacob was a deluder and a deceiver right from the very start uh, as he stole the blessing and the birthright from uh, Esau. And that carried on to the next, of course, then when Jacob got married, all kinds of deception among his father-in-law and his wife, Rachel, pretending that she didn't have the household idols, all those things when they came back to Israel. And then in the fourth generation, among the children of Israel and the 12 tribes, all kind of deception going on this way and that way. And so it shows that that happens. Now, Genesis also shows us many examples during those times and those same generations of God at work through his mercy, through his grace, his steadfast love and truth. So I think about our passage here. And for those just joining us, we looked at how in chapter 32 and 33, they were dealing with the sin and the aftermath of the golden calf incident where they violated the first three commandments said this golden calf that Aaron had formed was the God who delivered them up out of Egypt. They practiced sexual sin during that time. God judged all that as their idolatry was exposed. But as God was restoring Israel after the golden calf incident, here in chapter 34, he wanted them to take sin seriously and repent of it rather than to dismiss it as 
no big deal. There's four different times this visiting the sin to the third and fourth generation language occurs in the Old Testament. But Exodus 34 is not the first. Exodus 20 is. What's in Exodus 20? That's when God gives the Ten Commands. So turn back to Exodus 20. Let's take the time to look at those verses in Exodus 20. When God gave them the Ten Commands after he had delivered them out of Egyptian bondage. I want you to look carefully at how when it gets to the part about visiting the sin, how it the way it says that in comparison with Exodus 34. Verse 1 of Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Did you see what happened there? Somebody shouted out. What happens there in contrast to our passage in 34? He, he flips the order, doesn't he? Flips the order. The concepts are reversed. In the first case, God warned of the consequences of sin going forward, and then he gave them the reassurance of what God's steadfast love can do. Sure, you're all sinners, and that sin has consequences, but if you turn to me and do what I say, then you can, the steadfast love is going to impact thousands, right? But after the sin with the golden calf, here in Exodus 34, God first reassures them of his steadfast love and forgiveness when they repent, and then gives them the warning of the consequences of sin going forward. Now, why is it one way in Exodus 20 and the reverse in Exodus 34? Why does God do that to us sometimes? Why does he change it up a little bit for us, even though he's teaching the same things? Because to live a balanced faith, sometimes we need to remind it of God's grace and forgiveness first. And other times we need to first be reminded of God's holiness and how much sin can mess us up. What do you need to be reminded of more today? We tend to get things out of whack, don't we? There are grace people and churches just for those expressing grace. And over here, there's truth churches for people that are into truth all the time. And Jesus came and he perfectly modeled being full of grace and truth. And he asked us to do the same thing. He wants us to walk loving him. He wants us to walk fearing him, putting him first in all things, knowing he's God and we're not. Which do you need to be more reminded of today? Are you in danger of taking God's forgiveness for granted and continuing a sin that will mess up the godly impact you can have with your children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren? Some of you are. Some of you are like, I'm saved, I know it, I'm going to heaven, I've got that hell insurance, and I don't care what that pastor says, I'm not going to stop looking at that pornography. I don't care how it affects my ability to be intimate with my wife. I'm just going to keep on doing that in some wise, maybe saying that toward the husband. Some of you are in danger because you're not setting proper fear of God elements into your life. You're in danger of having an affair and messing much up in your life. Others of you are leaving all the spiritual instruction uh, of your children to the church and its ministries. You're just taking it for granted that you can leave it to others when God has put it on your doorstep first. It's your responsibility. We're your partners in that. Or is your problem the opposite of that? Are you the one beating yourself up 
so much over your sin that you want to confess it to God and receive his forgiveness. You know he forgives sin, you ask him to, but you just can't believe he really would forgive you. You know what I do when Satan says, Danny, you're a dirtbag? You know what I do? I agree with him. I say, you're right, man. In my own flesh, I'm just the worst of sinners. Eh? You're, why am I talking to a snake, right? He uses guilt. He uses shame. And some of you just pound yourself up on that, you know. And God wants you to know that forgiven means forgiven. Separating from as far as the east is from the west means it's separated as far as the east is from the west. You say, Danny, I, I can believe that God forgave me, I can't forgive myself. There's no verse that calls you to forgive yourself. You're called to agree with God that you really are the kind of dirt bag that would do those things. God loves you anyway. And if you humble yourself before him, he'll forgive you. And he'll give you something better than self-esteem could ever be. Christ-esteem that lets you know you're his child. The average American's being crucified between two thieves, their regrets about yesterday and their fears about tomorrow. It's true for many of you in this room. But for Jesus, the only two days that matter are the day that you were saved, because that day you became a child of God. And for the rest of your life, you'll be looking into his word and you'll seeing what that means now that you've got the Holy Spirit inside, that all your sin was dealt with on the cross, that you've got the body of Christ. The day you were saved, you became adopted into God's family. You were accepted in the beloved. His Holy Spirit took up residence in your heart. And all the things Ephesians 1 says, if you need those, go and look at them later. Just 15 or so things that are true of you. And Paul's so excited about telling them to the church in Ephesus that Verses 3 through 14 of chapter 1 of Ephesians is just one verse in the Greek language. It's the longest run-on sentence. Paul flunked his Greek that day. The teacher would have graded, this is a run-on sentence too long. This is three paragraphs here. Why you got it all in one verse? But he was so excited about sharing that the Holy Spirit just ran it all into one great verse, one great sentence. What's the other day that matters for the believer? Today! The difference you and I can make as we follow Jesus and live out his plan for our life rather than what Satan wants for us. Amen? So regrets of yesterday, fears of tomorrow, that's no way to live. As a believer, you became different that day that Christ became real and you were born again. You were born again. And now you're his. And so the other day that matters is today, the difference you can make. God can't lie to you. He tells you both things here in different orders in chapter 20 and 34 to keep us on track with him or to get us back on track with him. Our sins can have consequences for years to come, but turning back to God and his steadfast love will impact eternity. And that's why Romans 6, 1 and 2 says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? By no means. Meganointo. Not May it be, there's a New Testament not first, not, may it be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So, I teach sometimes that to really make the most of your faith and your impact for God, you've got to lower your expectations but raise your aspirations. 
What does that mean, Pastor Danny? If you've ever been to me for counseling, I've probably used that line with you. Because perfectionism can really drain so many people from all that God has for them. You lower your expectations because you're realizing I am a sinner and if I'm left to my own devices, I could do anything that anybody else could. So I don't have time to judge others. I gotta work on me. It's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in need of prayer. You lower your expectations, but you raise your aspirations. As a believer, you're always saying, I want 1 Corinthians 13 type love to be the kind of love I give out to others. I'm not surprised when I blow it, but part of blowing it is humbly realizing it, and then love is patient, love is kind. Love doesn't keep records of wrongs, it's not jealous, all those different things. You lower your expectations because we're sinners, but you raise your aspirations, you keep going forward with Christ trying to make maximum impact for him. Turn to Ezekiel 18 like we talked about. Ezekiel 18. If you're new to your Bible and you don't know where Ezekiel's at, go to your table of contents, it'll give you the page number. And then when we say turn to Ezekiel 18, 1, 18 means the chapter, there's chapter numbers, and then the one means the first verse there. First time I was ever in church, I wouldn't have known anything about that. And so that's why we need to take the time to share it with those who don't know anything about that. Because some of them are going to be preachers one day. Some of them are going to be lady missionaries one day and doing this and that and the other. And everybody doesn't know until they know. So less church talk around each other and more teaching talk. Ezekiel 18, first verses 1 through 4. The word of the Lord came to me, Ezekiel the prophet. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. In Israel, one of their popular songs was, Mama did crack and I'm a crack baby. The fathers ate sour grapes, that's why I come out with teeth that need alcohol. They did it, so I do it. It was all over the land, one of the most popular things they're saying. Look what God says to them in verse 3. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. You know what he's telling every generation? Stop making excuses. God's got a plan for every generation. Don't blame your grandparents or your parents for anything. And kids, you can't rely on your parents' righteousness. You've got to seek God yourself. Verse 4, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well. The soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Ezekiel 18 is well worth taking the time to read all the way through. We're not going to do it this morning. But it demolishes the uh, false teaching of generational curses. The verses I've already read have already done that. But look down at verse 19. Yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? When the son has done what is just and right and has been careful to deserve all my statutes, he will surely live. The soul who sins will die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. But if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps my statutes and does what is just and right, he will surely live, he will not die. None of the transgressions that he has committed shall be remembered against him, for the righteousness that he has done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? If that's a question, it's answered at the very last verse, verse 32, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn, 
repent, turn, and live. Isn't that good news? I'll never forget when I was uh, first learning how to do a lot of things in church. A wonderful preacher, Bill Smithson in Tennessee, had a small church and I was a Bryan College recruiter, but I'd go to the church when I was in, and he took me out, and we'd go places and share the gospel with kids and adults and all the different things. He's such a great example to me. On one of those nights of visitation, I was upset about something related to my own earthly dad or whatever and stuff like that, and I, he just looked at me and he said, Bill Smithson said, Danny, do you know what I see when I see you? And I thought, oh no. <laughs> He said, Danny, I don't know your dad. I don't know exactly where you come from. But I know lots of scriptures that say I don't need to. I know you've made your peace with God. You love him more than anything. More than anything, you want to make a difference for him in the world. He gave me the gift of teaching me what's in Ezekiel 18. That each of us, no matter where we come from, good or bad, we can't... You know, what do you do? You run into a lot of kids from Christian homes, don't you? And they're just coasting. Their parents really have a great track record of service, but they don't, and many of them wind up making godly decisions and walking away from the faith. And then you meet others that came from a home, and they're like, well, Danny, I'm in church today, but I'm new to this Christian thing, and uh, my parents, you know, had an open marriage where they slept with anything that moved and different things, and I, I've just never seen anything like what you're talking about, you know. Well, golly, I came from a home full of sinners too, and every home's a home full of sinners because church folk are figuring a lot of things out too sometimes. That's why the church always has to remember part of what we do here is a hospital, right, where we get people bandaged up, and then we've got some specialty wings where we're doing other things, you know. Um, but we always want to make sure that we just come and receive God's grace and we're ready to give it to others and see what he's going to do in our midst, that we love others in his name. God wants everyone to experience him. Ezekiel 18 shares the heart of God just like the Jonah 4-2 passage does. God, Chuck Lawless said this, nothing the enemy offers me is better than what God has already given me or plans to as my future unfolds. Isn't that good? What was Moses' response back in Exodus 34? He bowed down and he worshiped the Lord. He asked God to stick with Israel even though they were a stiff-necked people. And God reiterated the covenant with them. He called them to obey his command so that they could flourish. By the end of Exodus 34, we see that Moses' face was glowing because he had met with God. And that still happens to people today who repent, believe, and build their life around their relationship with God. The moment anyone turns to Christ, they've got the same things Billy Graham had when he turned to Christ. The ability to humble yourself and pray, to seek God's face, to make biblical decisions now, to repent quickly when you mess up, and to start sharing with others in word and deed this great love of the Lord. It's Buddhism and other religions and Masons that have degrees of things, right? The 32nd degree. For believers, there's just those who are knowing God and making him known and, and those who are still the mission field because they haven't really made their peace with God yet. None of us gets it 100% right and God knew that would be the case. He offers forgiveness to all who humbly ask for it. I believe God gave these components of his name in Exodus 34 for us today. 
by extension, first to Israel and us today as we look on and apply these things in our hearts and lives. And you might have needed to know more about mercy and grace, and some of you might have needed this last word about him by no means clearing the guilty if you won't repent. But you put them all together, and what do you have? You have a call to reorder your life, to focus your life upon God's love and truth for you. Everybody ought to read the Chronicles of Narnia, first for themselves and then for their kids one day. But let me give you a quote from my favorite mouse, the Aslan-loving Reepicheep from The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Look what he said. My own plans are made. While I can, I shall sail east in the Dawn Treader. That's a ship. When she fails me, I paddle east in my coracle. When she sinks, I shall swim east with my forepaws. And when I can swim no longer, if I've not reached Aslan's country or shot over the edge of the world in some vast cataract, I will sink with my nose to the sunrise. That's a focused mouse right there. Are you focused on your faith? Are you so focused on your love for the Lord and the truth of his word that no matter what, you're going to seek him? Have, have you, has that been trivial in the past, but lately the love of the world, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life has kind of obscured that some? That's what this series has been about. God has told us who he is. Believe him and act on it. For those who don't know the Lord, how can you be clear to your sin? Lost person, how can you be declared not guilty of your sin? Here's what Romans 5.1 says. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Justification by the things you do to change your own life? No. Justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Even more astounding, how can you be declared righteous in God's eyes? We who don't have a human righteousness, we're sinners. Genesis 15, 6 says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's why we talk about the justification by faith. God has lots for you to do and lots for you to act on, but if you're here today and don't know the Lord, the first thing you need to say to yourself is, am I the sinner the Bible says I am with a need that the Bible says I have? And if you can say, yes, I'm a sinner. At 17 years old, that's what happened with me. Yes, uh, yeah, I'm a sinner. I, I need God. And then if you'll also then agree with what the Bible says about Jesus is being sinless, he lived the perfect life you fall short of, his great love made him willing to die in your place of judgment, to take your sin upon himself, to pay the penalty for your sin. If you will reach out to him in faith the Bible says whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved one guy in the Bible didn't know what else to do he just said God be merciful to me a sinner and God saved that man Jesus actually said that's the one who went home justified not the one talking about how good they were and the good righteous deeds they did Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.